Good afternoon, good morning, good day, whatever works for you, that's what we'll go with. Hope you're having a good one. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around podcast. Glad to have you aboard yet again. Lots getting close to happening. So since we started doing this podcast, we've basically been in pandemic almost the entire way. We did a couple before everything got shut down, but you know we've been rolling right through and Now, as we get to where it looks like we're going to have sports again, it's kind of fun because you're starting to maybe think things matter in sports. And I don't know if they truly do. I'm not sure how these seasons are going to be remembered as we look back on it. But I know myself as somebody who is a sports fan, whose life has always revolved around sports and you know, I'm going to watch this game or that game. I'm going to go to this event, that event. We can't go anymore, but we certainly can watch. And Major League Baseball, as we record this, it's Tuesday. Major League Baseball starts on Thursday. A couple real good games Thursday. The Yankees are in Washington to play the Nationals. Garrett Cole against Max Scherzer. About as good a pitching matchup as you could hope for. Now, Opening day this year is a little different than any other. Everything's different. The new normal is different. And then you've got, of course, the Giants and Dodgers late. Johnny Cueto against Clayton Kershaw. So while you look at that, Kershaw and, and Scherzer are eventual Hall of Famers. They are in. Cueto's had a very good career. And Garrett Cole, his career is trending, certainly, in that direction. Over the next 10 years, he'll be hopefully pitching for the New York Yankees, making a boatload of money. We'll see where it goes. But the last couple years in Houston have certainly shown that the young phenom who came up with the Pirates and looked like he was going to be something has become that guy. Again, health will go a long way to dictating where he becomes. But we got our first taste of what baseball 2020 is going to look like this weekend. Mets and Yankees played exhibitions both at City Field and at Yankee Stadium. There were exhibitions played basically throughout baseball. Teams got together and played their rivals or teams within close proximity, and it was good. It was it was baseball. It was real baseball. And there was some spring training feels to it, which is fine. But it was also strange. And, you know, again, as I said, the new normal is different. Everything's different. And that's what we've come to expect. But baseball, more than any other sport, seems to have a way of screwing things up in an effort to improve its sport. Baseball's got a problem with their average demographic. You want to know what an average baseball fan demographically looks like? You're looking at it if you're watching this on YouTube. I am the average baseball demographic. And I got to be honest, that's concerning. Not for me, for them, because I'm old and they're not getting any younger. And because baseball's not getting any younger, eventually people like me are going to go to the great beyond and who's going to replace me as a viewer. So baseball's tried many things to figure out ways to, to get the game so it translates to the younger crowd. And, and frankly, I don't think baseball will translate in 2020, in 2021, or beyond. 
it's a game that many people my age of my era and older and maybe a little bit younger fell in love with because we grew up playing baseball. That was the game that we played first. When I was a kid, soccer wasn't available for us to play. Soccer wasn't a thing. Now, to me, the best sport for kids to play at a very early age is soccer because youth soccer is go run around and chase the ball. And what's better for a kid to do than run around and chase the ball? Baseball or T-ball to a little kid is the most boring thing ever. You hope little Johnny can hit the ball. You hope somebody can catch it. You put 20 kids on the field, there might be one or two who understand what's going on, one or two who enjoy what's going on, and, and it's their parents' dream that the kids go out there and rip it up like Aaron Judge or whoever your favorite player may be, Mike Trout, whatever. But it doesn't happen anymore. So kids are forced to play baseball at an early age. They end up hating it because it's boring. Nobody plays pickup. Nobody plays wiffle ball in the backyard anymore. Those things are games of years gone by. So baseball has a problem because people aren't playing the sport. So the brilliant people who run Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred and his people, keep coming up with different ways to make it better. And, you know, in 2020, there are no fans. So the production value of baseball is much different. Now, baseball has the archaic blackout rules, which are still in effect, by the way, this year. No fans could go, but, you know, if you live in Buffalo, you're blacked out from three different teams, including one that may play in your very city. I'll get to the Blue Jays in Buffalo in a minute. But it's baseball being married to its past, married to its tradition, while trying to figure out a way to be more interesting. And in doing so, they're bastardizing their own sport. The thing that is going on now is they're trying to figure out how to make baseball look normal in these big empty stadiums. You know, City Field, I believe, is about 45,000 seats. Yankee Stadium, closer to 50,000. Watched the games this weekend. City Field, they decided it was a good idea to have cardboard cutouts of folks and put them in the stand. So when you're watching on TV, it looks like there are people there. Has baseball come up with a dumber idea than that? Seriously. Is, is there anything dumber than having cardboard cutouts of people in the stands behind home plate? Whose brilliant idea was that? I think in one of the, I don't know if it was the Korean League or the Japanese, they actually put sex dolls in the seats. Now, that's more interesting because that's a little taboo. And you look at it and go, oh, well, that one looks a little weird. But, you know, that one looks normal. And, you know, you rate the sex dolls. Why are you having cardboard cutouts of people? There are no people there. We're not pretending there are people there. It doesn't add anything. The only people there are the players who aren't playing who, because of social distancing, can't be in the dugout and now are sitting in the stands. What is that that you decide you have to change things up? Again, baseball being baseball. But 
take that away because not everyone's doing it. The Mets did that. The Yankees are not. But what it seems as though everyone is doing is pumping in crowd noise. Yeah, like a game show. Remember Gene Rayburn, if you're old like me, you will, with the skinny microphone and you had the canned laughter every time he said a bad joke? Yeah, that's what Major League Baseball is doing. I want you to listen to a couple home runs that happen in these exhibition games. And you'll notice the empty seats. But pay attention to the crowd noise, finger quotes, crowd noise in these clips. And he does. Oh, he crushed it. See ya. Oh, into the bleachers. A monster shot by Giancarlo Stanton. And it's 6-0 Yankees. Two two. Bellinger turns on it, lifts it down the line to right, back towards the pole. Calhoun to the wall, a grand slam. And after all that consternation over the change in stance and change in setup, and trying to adjust back to a level of comfort, and the lights turn on, another team comes in, and the MVP launches a grand slam. I, I don't understand why is there crowd noise? Why is there cheering? Why is there going to be booing piped in? It is stupid. In my opinion, baseball has a chance to go back to an organic presentation that we all have been a part of. If you're watching baseball, you've probably played it at some level. You've probably gone to a game, whether it be Little League or high school or even a, a low-level major minor league game like the New York Penn League, where there isn't the in-game experience that you have at the major league level. You have a different way of watching the game. And it's, like I said, an organic game. The sounds of the game. You hear the manager, you hear the players, you hear the umpires, you hear the discussion. That's the better way to present it put on field microphones out there so you hear what's being said you hear the game the sounds of the game i don't need to hear fake applause i don't need to hear walk-up music i mean if you want to play walk-up music fine if the players want it it's just again baseball is trying to present something that it isn't. They have an opportunity here to, in my opinion, strip it down. One of the big concerns of baseball is speed of the game. You always hear that. we got to quicken up the game. Baseball has always been conflicted because the two biggest things they want to do is improve the offense and increase scoring. So they juiced the ball last year instead of the players. And if you were a 220 slappy, you could go oppo 400 feet hit 30 home runs. I think it was 58 players hit 30 home runs last year. So baseball's taking care of that. And then you want to speed up the game. Well, breaking news, those two are contradictory. When you speed up the game, you want better pitching, better defense, put the ball in play, those things. 
baseball has tried to create offense. And because of that, they've actually slowed the game down. All of these in-game presentation things need to go away. Strip it down. Show organically played baseball where you can hear the players, you can hear the coaches, umpires, and that's it. There's no need for any other sounds. The Yankees hit a bunch of home runs the other night against the Mets, and they still do that stupid light show at Yankee Stadium whenever somebody hits a home run. Why? That was dumb when you had 45,000 people going nuts. It's dumber when there's nobody there. It makes no sense that baseball is trying to do these things. That, look, you're competing for viewership. You're competing for customers, right? That's what, that's what baseball's biggest task is. How do we put people in the seats? How do we get people to watch? How do we make the in-game experience when you're at the stadium to be almost as comfortable as your at-home viewing experience? All of these things go into it. So you want to keep people's attention. So there's always things going on in stadium. The customers aren't there. They're home watching on TV. You don't need all of these stupid things to go on. Play the game. Let the game be the selling point. That's where the reality of the situation should come out. But no, Major League Baseball is run by morons. You've got ownership groups that are clueless. And it's just not going to get any better. So while we're excited because we're going to have something to watch starting Thursday, Yankees, Nationals, going to be a fun game. If you get the right channels, you can watch it on the Yes Network. It'll be blacked out on ESPN locally because the Yes Network's part of it. So unless you have the right cable package or streaming package, you're not going to be able to watch it because baseball refuses to do anything different that would help people at home. And trying to make it seem normal, we all understand. We're not... We are idiots, but we're not complete morons that we think baseball should be the same game, look the same. No, it's not going to. None of these games are. No sport is going to be the same with no fans. Nothing is going to be normal, yet baseball is intent on making itself. And, you know, while we look ahead, I got to point this out. The brilliant people who write the major league schedule, the Yankees and Nationals, they open Thursday. A plethora of games on Friday, and then the weekend goes on as as set. set. And it's a sixty game schedule. Here we are in mid July, and it's going to end in mid September. So, in basically two and a half months or two months and a little over, you can play sixty games. Very few days off. The players being healthy and, and getting rest when they can. It's going to be imperative to the team's success. Yankees and Nationals play Thursday, and they have an off day on Friday. Really? They probably have seven off days for the entire two months, and one of them is after game one. That's a good idea, Rob Manfred. You are a complete nutter moron. Look, I love the fact you're from Rome, New York, being a central New York guy myself. 
I love that. I love that you went to Lemoyne and Cornell, two upstate New York schools. Absolutely love that. There's nothing else about you that I love, dude. You are a complete and utter moron, and you're challenging Gary Bettman, who, by the way, actually got a labor deal done during pandemic, as the worst commissioner in the history of sports. I thought Bud Selig was bad. Bud Selig buried his hand in the steroid era and pretended like he had no clue what was going on. Yeah, well, uh, bring me back some Bud right now. I, I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. This is just moronic. And, and the Yankees, again, they're a team that, in the Nationals, they're the defending champion. Two teams that hope to get to the playoffs and have chance. They need days off. Not after one game. So stupid. And so poorly prepared. Well, speaking of poorly prepared, poorly prepared would be a team that is going to play. Now, this is a major league game in roughly eight days. The first Blue Jays home game is going to happen on July 29th. So we're looking at a week and a half, a week and a day. Next Wednesday is July 29th. The Blue Jays can't play in Canada because Canada has said the U.S. handling of COVID is beyond reproach. So let's just, no, you're not allowed. We don't want you in our country. Sidebar, hockey is being played in two Canadian cities. There's being played in Edmonton where the arena got flooded this past weekend. And they're going to be played in Toronto. And a lot of American teams are welcome to play in hockey. But Baseball is a different story in Canada, obviously. But when you look at the Blue Jays not having a place to play eight days prior to their home opener, it's a little concerning. But they're trying to figure this out. They've reached out to several different places. And right now it appears as though there are three places that are leaders in the clubhouse to potentially host the Toronto Blue Jays. One is their spring training complex in Dunedin, Florida. It's close to Tampa, so there's that proximity. If they were to play the Rays, they could go over there and do it. The complex is something they're familiar with and more than adequate. They've got all the accoutrements that a major league team would need at their minor league complex, so it would work out that way. But again, with COVID rates spiking in Florida, doesn't necessarily seem like a good idea to have it down there. And then there's the question of teams that have to travel to play the Blue Jays, say the Yankees or the Mets would have to travel to Florida. And at this point, Florida is one of about 23 states that you need a two-week quarantine if you return home from. Not sure how that's going to work. So there are logistical reasons that make Dunedin, Florida, a difficult sell to be a full-time situation. One other area that the Jays have reached out to is is Pittsburgh. PNC Park is a great ballpark. As a matter of fact, of all the ballparks I've been to, and I've been to a ton, probably 10, there isn't a better place to watch a baseball game than PNC Park in Pittsburgh. If you haven't been down, and hopefully at some point we can go back to watching games, take the four-and-a-half-hour drive from Rochester, head down there, and, and catch a game. There are hotels that you park your car. You don't need your car until you get to leave. Bars, restaurants, shops, all the things you'd want, all walking distance, and a ballpark that is fantastic. They did it 
perfectly when they built that place. So the Jays have looked into playing there. Obviously, it's major league ready. All the accoutrements that a major league team would need are already in place. The problem is they've got another tenant, Pittsburgh Pirates. I mentioned July 29th. The Pirates that day have a home game. So how do you reconcile that where you've got two tenants now you could play one in the afternoon and one at night but are you going to have time to sanitize and clean the clubhouses and do all the covid preparations that are going to be needed for baseball to go on as it may the third choice and from what i'm understanding it's becoming a long shot that this is the choice would be to play the home games in Buffalo at Salem Stadium. Salem Stadium is the home of the Buffalo Bisons, the AAA affiliate for the Blue Jays. Now, Salem Stadium was built in the 90s as a stadium that could be expanded to host a major league team should the city of Buffalo get a major league team. The proximity to the border, if things open up before the end of the season, would allow fans from Toronto or from Canada to come across and potentially watch the games, support the team. I think the city of Buffalo would roll out the red carpet for the team. But the reality is the stadium isn't adequate at this point. They would need to improve the lightings. The biggest thing, according to people who know, is that the lighting right now at Salem Stadium is traditional lighting, not LED lighting. Big difference when it comes to Major League Baseball. There's also problems that the clubhouses aren't up to Major League standards. In other words, the players might actually have to deal with less than posh conditions. But more importantly than that is they're smaller. So again, social distancing likely wouldn't happen. If Buffalo is used as a home park, then Rochester would house the rest of the players on the taxi squad, if you will. Remember, teams have 60 players, 30-man roster. The other 30 continue essentially like a spring training throughout the season to be ready to go up as replacements for injuries. So they'd work out pretty much daily. Their summer would be spent playing baseball in a spring training-like atmosphere. So Rochester would actually get a little something from this as well. Again, I mentioned from what I've read this morning, that is very much a long shot that the Jays end up in Buffalo. I do think there may be some games played there because if you can't play all your games in one place, you could spread this around a little bit. It, it's amazing to me that, you know, here we are forever. Sports have been trying to expand in, to other countries. The Blue Jays being in Toronto, there was a lot of talk that the Rays could maybe share cities, play half their games in Montreal, the other half down in Tampa, so that way fans could have more chances to get, more fans could have chances to go buy tickets. The NFL has increased its games in Europe and Mexico. I've hated all of these games. When the Bills played in Toronto, it was a cash grab by Ralph Wilson. I understand that. I hated it. The NFL has wanted to expand into Toronto. 
Well, this pandemic has shown us, logistically speaking, that international games can be problematic. And that's exactly what has happened. So in Sports League's quest for the almighty dollar, they have cost themselves greatly logistically. Long term, do the Blue Jays go back to Toronto? We'll have to wait and see. Is this a one-year situation with COVID? Again, great mystery. None of us know the answer to that. But I think sports teams have to start rethinking their plans to play abroad or elsewhere. For the Jays, they've got to figure this out. If they want to play in Buffalo in eight days, they've got work to do. And that that work can be done. There are ways you can make that work. If they want to play in Dunedin, Florida, they better figure that out as well because there are things about that travel-wise and quarantine-wise that may very well come into play. And if that's the case, it's problematic not only for the Toronto Blue Jays, but for all of Major League Baseball. And while it looks like we're going to move ahead with the season, it's the details like this that are still not settled that may cause things to not go as smoothly as we think that they will. So keep your eye on this. I personally would love it if they came to Buffalo and played. I think it would give the city of Buffalo a little bit of a boost. I think the people of Buffalo would certainly support the Jays as their own. It would help grow the brand, certainly, which is always good for Major League Baseball. If they go down in Pittsburgh to play, it will be akin to a couple years ago, if you remember, the Scranton baseball team, the Yankees farm team, played a bulk of their home games here in Rochester. And while their stadium situation was being renovated or built, nobody went. Nobody cared. When there's already a team in place, unless the team that comes in is significantly better, nobody's going to care. The Blue Jays going to Pittsburgh, it's more of the same. A scrappy young team that's probably not going to win very many baseball games. So, I don't like the idea of going to Pittsburgh. I understand it logistically, but I don't think the fans will care. And I think if they move further away from Toronto and don't go to Buffalo, I think fans in Toronto are going to be a little annoyed by that. They'll lose some interest as well. So MLB has to be very careful with how they handle this thing. So that's the baseball report for this week think next week we're going to be talking about real games hopefully we'll have some interesting situations and hopefully we won't have a whole lot more canned noise get rid of that manfred wake up the nfl is looking to get going as a matter of fact a couple teams have their rookies reporting this week the kansas city chiefs defending super bowl champions their rookies are going in as are the Houston Texans. The Packers, they they said, hold up a minute, keep their rookies where they are. There's still a lot of work to be done between the National Football League Players Association and the owners as far as the safety protocols. Yesterday was a good day. They worked out some very important details for the protocols. As a matter of fact, yesterday they came up with a testing program. Players will be tested 
every day initially and then every other day. But if there are outbreaks, it will go back to every day. So the safety protocols were put into place. However, there's going to be a lot more before this smooths over because the lot more is going to come down to money. It's the NFL is going to lose about $4 billion this year playing without fans. There may be some fans, so say they get 25% league-wide, they're losing $3 billion. They've signed contracts that players like Patrick Mahomes just signed or Dak Prescott's deal that he just agreed to, that franchise deal, that pay $30 million. Well, when you lose roughly half your revenue when you run a business, that money generally, that loss generally trickles down, such is the case in the NFL. And now ownership is looking to the players for some concessions to how to handle this year. The initial reaction or the initial suggestion was they were going to take 25% of the income from this year's salaries and put it in escrow for 10 years. So the players would eventually get all their money, but it would take some time. The NFL PA pushed back on that saying they didn't want their one group of players to take the hit for all future groups of players. If you think about it, this is something, again, that could go on for a while, and the players playing this year would be the ones affected by it. So there's a lot of reasons why this situation is about to get ugly. Whenever you get money involved and you're trying to take somebody's money, it gets a little interesting. Nobody's willing to say, yeah, I, I don't need that extra $10 million. And, you know, we as fans, and I love this, oh, they're so greedy. The players, they're always so greedy. And fans always take the side of players. I've talked about this with baseball when they were going through this, more so in football. The players' salaries are not guaranteed in football. They get cut when they're paid more than they're worth. So the owners don't have to pay the money that they agreed to pay them. But if a player refuses a pay cut or a player holds out for more money, the player's greedy, the player's selfish, not the owner. You don't hear the owners being selfish, even though they are multi-billionaires who, if a season doesn't go on, yes, they lose money. But things happen like they have to cancel the production of their super yacht as opposed to just figuring out how to feed their family if you're a low-income NFL player who doesn't make the squad, you better find a job. And in pandemic, it's not easy. The players, they're taking a page out of the Major League Baseball Players Association playbook. Do you remember back when baseball was trying to get to 110 games, the players were, or 78, 80 games? And the owners were set at 60, and there was a coordinated group of players that tweeted out that they wanted to play. Same thing happened this weekend. Stefan Diggs, J.J. Watt, Drew Brees, Todd Gurley. The hashtag, we want to play, was put at the end of all of these things. So it's a coordinated approach to making sure that the NFL 
does their job to get things in place so that the players feel safe. One thing that definitely is going to happen, it looks like the players wanted no preseason games. Remember this. Players don't get checks for preseason games. They get game checks. They don't get paid until game one. So the players playing in preseason games never earned them any money. What it did earn them, and not all but some, was opportunity. This year with no preseason games, you're an undrafted free agent. You have simply training camp to make the team. That's it. You better shine in camp. And by shine, I mean be the star of camp. Because if you're an undrafted free agent this year, the odds of you making this team, any team, is beyond remote. It's going to be the draft picks and the veterans. That's your makeup of your roster. With no preseason games for players to go out and prove themselves, it is going to be scary. Here's the other thing. With no preseason games, week one through four is going to look a little different. Expect some teams to come out of the gate very strong. Those will be teams that have continuity in their coaching staff, in their players. Those are teams that they've been together for a while. Those teams will will thrive early on. Other teams that will take them time. If you're a Buffalo Bills fan, it's good news because you've got the same offensive line in place. You've got the same head coach coordinators, the same quarterback. Everything's the same except for a few tweaks here and there. What will scare some teams are the rookie coaches, guys who have not done it. Matt Rule, who's never been through an NFL camp down in Carolina, never coached in an NFL game, is now not going to have an opportunity to get used to that in the preseason. So preseason likely to be canceled altogether. They've already scrapped two of the four games Looks like they will play no games. And I think it's important that they play one game and it's not going to happen. Not for all the reasons I just gave, but for players and and coaches and and training staffs, stadium people to get used to the protocols that are going to be put forth among them. Likely teams will fly in on charters, day of game, get to the stadium, an hour or two before the game, loosen up, go out and play, get on that charter, go back home. No longer will they fly in the day or two before, stay in hotels. None of that's likely to happen in this situation. So the getting off a plane and plane thing, I think is something that some players may have to adjust to. It may take a minute, and they won't have that opportunity in preseason. The COVID things that they need to deal with sanitation-wise, I'm not sure how that gets implemented without a practice run as well. It is great to have an idea how to do things. And, you know, any business that opens up, and let's face it, this year the NFL and all of these leagues that are open, this is a new business. It's a different business model than has ever been put forth. When you open a business... You have a blueprint. You think we're going to do this, this, and this. That's how it's going to work. And then you're open for a day or a week or a month, and you realize 
this was dumb. We should have done this. We need to do this. Those things, when they happen better, are what tweak your business and make it successful. The NFL is going to do this without a dry run. Guaranteed, there are significant changes that happen between week one and week four to the way teams go about playing football in the COVID situation. So keep an eye, even though the rookies are starting to report, keep an eye on the financial negotiations that are going to go on between the NFLPA and its and the owners as the owners look for a way to save some money that they're losing this year and look for a way to for them to feel safe about playing the players that is feel safe about playing the game testing helps but i think there are more protocols that need to be put into place before the players are ready to jump in with both feet espn did an interesting thing and i always like this to read this it kind of gives uh an outside view of where your franchise is not the team for this year not the situation but the franchise, and it's your next three years power ranking. So what they do is they look at the different areas of strength of your organization, rank them, give you a value, and then they put you in a situation where they rank the next three years. The ways that they look at it is roster strength, quarterback, coach, draft, and front office. The Baltimore Ravens were number one. And you think about that, they've got Lamar Jackson, who last year was an MVP of the league. He's a unique player, a unique talent. He's a guy that's only going to get better from the pocket, theoretically. If he stays healthy, and I think that's always a risk with... I always think that's a risk when you're talking about a player who plays the way Lamar Jackson does. Kansas City Chiefs, number two, makes sense. They've got the great young quarterback, Andy Reid, is the coach. Front office is drafted exceedingly well. So there's a lot of things to like there. The 49ers, likewise. There are some questions with Jimmy Garoppolo, but overall, that's a strong roster. That defense with Bosa on the defensive line, anchoring that D-line, is very good. They continue to grow the roster. The Saints were number four, and I I had a little question here because Drew Brees is a Hall of Fame quarterback the minute he stops playing, which will be at the end of this year, 41 years old. This is a three-year situation. Jameis Winston and Taysom Hill are the backup quarterbacks, and I I like Jameis better than most. He's a 30-30 guy, can't have it, can't win with it, needs to be better. Will he be better with Sean Payton? Yes. He's also on a one-year deal, so I'm not sure he's going to get the chance. Taysom Hill, everyone loves Taysom Hill. All 14 of his passes last year looked great. I'm not ready to sign on to Taysom Hill seamlessly moving on to be the franchise quarterback when Drew Brees walks out the door. So I thought that was a little bizarre. And the Dallas Cowboys are number five. And as much as I do like the Cowboys roster, The offensive line getting a little bit older. Tyron Smith, not the same player at left tackle, misses a lot of games with injury. The defensive back end, still a big question mark. They cannot find a secondary that's going to help the pass rush. You need both things. You need the pass rush to help the secondary. 
You needed a secondary to help the pass rush. Their pass rush, led by DeMarcus, DeMarcus Lawrence, is very good. Their back end is not very good. So those two things don't work together. Also, Dak Prescott signed a franchise deal, as we know. Next year, it's likely that the salary cap will go from somewhere around 210 to 120 million that it is this year, down to maybe even as low as 120 million. Can you possibly pay your quarterback almost 40 million or one third of the salary cap next year? I don't think you can do that. So, who plays quarterback? Andy Dalton? If that's the case, do you really believe that this is going to be a team over the next couple of years that's going to be in that situation? So, the top five agree with three, don't agree with two, but it looks good. I, of course, was interested to see where the Buffalo Bills would be, and they were the 14th best organization over the next three years. And if you read through it, there's one obvious reason they're not higher. The roster strength was six. It shows the job Brandon Bede has done creating depth throughout the roster, balance throughout the roster. That what many experts and these experts think is the sixth best roster in the NFL. It's very strong. The coach, ninth best coach for Sean McDermott. McDermott has done a great job. We talked about it last week that he's probably somewhere between 10 and 15. Well, they had him as nine. That's a great compliment to McDermott. The draft they weren't quite as impressed with, but I think that had to do with this year trading the number one pick off to bring in Stefan Diggs. So they gave the Bills a 20 in draft. In front office, Brandon Bean, number seven, heading up the Bills' front office. Shows how strong that is. By the way, the fact that the Bills have a front office that's number seven, a head coach that's number 10, both will have one more year left in their contract after this year. The Bagulas need to pay them. Will they? Can they? We're going to find out. But just always Keep an eye on that. Where the Bills were hurt was with the quarterback. Josh Allen ranked 26th in the quarterbacks throughout. Now, look, I like Allen more than most people. I think when you look at Allen's play throughout last year, there were moments that he looked like the guy who came out of out of Wyoming and wasn't ready to be an NFL quarterback. Inaccurate, bad decisions, all of those things. But by and large, this is a kid who ran the offense pretty well, delivered the ball reasonably on target most of the time. Most of the time. Not all the time, most of the time. And made plays with his legs. And I think he'll continue to do that. This year, Stefan Diggs comes in, gives him another weapon, and adds to the pressure that's on him. He needs players to develop around him, like Dawson Knox. The offensive line, the continuity is there. Is Cody Ford now going to be more capable of handling that right tackle position? All of these things go into Josh Allen's development. If the Bills are going to be the team that many fans in Western New York hope and expect they will be, it's going to be because Josh Allen takes another big step forward. He did last year. He needs to again this year. Can he do it? Yeah, I believe he can. As a matter of fact, I was re-watching some things the other day when the Bills played the Texans, and some of the plays that weren't made around Josh Allen 
late in the fourth quarter and into overtime in that playoff game were very much part of the story. But Josh Allen, to me, took the heat from the loss because he stupidly tried to lateral the ball as he's going to the ground. People looked at that play, and and, and here's where Twitter world and analysts who don't watch game film in its entirety make conclusions. They had an image of Josh Allen when he came out, and they thought he was wildly inaccurate and wasn't a good NFL quarterback. Two years in, he still has inaccuracy issues. He also has trouble at times reading the defense. However, if you watch all of his plays, he's much better than people give him credit for by and large. Does he miss open guys? Sure he does. Does he make wrong reads? Sure he does. But so does every other second-year quarterback. Heck, Lamar Jackson won the MVP last year. He has still... Some of the same issues. The difference is he had a perfectly set up situation in Baltimore to play and he exceeded expectations greatly and he dazzled people. Josh Allen doesn't dazzle people. He doesn't do things that make huge highlight films other than jumping over a Minnesota Vikings linebacker. But by and large, he runs an offense well. His teammates respect him. They play hard for and with him. And frankly, I thought last year he played more than well enough in that game against Houston to get the job done. I thought there was conservative coaching. I thought there was bad defense. I thought there were a couple tough breaks with the officials. All of that coupled together is how you give up a 16 to nothing halftime lead and end up losing a playoff game that you have to win. And frankly, I wonder, had the Bills won that playoff game, would the image of Josh Allen be different than it is now? Brian Tannehill won a playoff game on the road. He got $20 million, and everyone seems okay with Ryan Tannehill. And frankly, Tannehill has had much more experience than Allen, and I think we have a more true indication of what Ryan Tannehill can be as opposed to what Josh Allen is going to be. I don't know what Josh Allen is going to be. I know what he can be. And I know from year one, especially day one, out of St. John Fisher, to where he was at the end of last year, it's a completely different quarterback and one that's grown by leaps and bounds. But it just shows when he's ranked 26th in a poll like this, there are a lot of people who still view him as a kid from Wyoming who's got talent in that arm but has raw skills and isn't ready to lead what many people think could be a championship team so interesting stuff there sticking with football college football again we're getting close to august and you know we're about six weeks away from the start of what would be a normal college football season there have been Leagues that have announced they are not going to play. The Pac-12 likely not going to play because schools in California are not going to play. USC, UCLA, Stanford, all of those schools likely to not play. But the question I was thinking about with preparation to this is if you only have a few Power Five conferences playing, 
does college football still work? The SEC plans to play. The SEC is down south where right now COVID is going crazy. But there's still full steam ahead trying to play football. There are a lot of reasons for this. Football in the south, it's religion. It is what they live live for year-round. There's two sports down there. It's football and spring football. Well, I think the SEC is going to try to play. I think the ACC is going to try to play. Syracuse, for example. And if you look at Syracuse's schedule, they have the second week of the season game is scheduled with Rutgers. That will be canceled because Rutgers, a member of the Big Ten, is only allowed to play in conference games. So Syracuse has a whole other schedule there. Colgate, that league has also, Patriot League, said, no, you're not playing. Two games off their schedule. There's trips to Clemson. Trips to Wake Forest. Florida State plays at the Dome at the end of the year. Is that something that can happen? Now, look, if the ACC does decide to play, I would expect Notre Dame to fill some spots on people's schedules as they lose games. Because Notre Dame, is, as we talked about last week on the podcast, losing USC and Stanford are going to be huge problems for them to try to fill their schedule as they go forward. So I would expect you see a lot of league play coming up. Joel Klatt is the lead analyst for Fox College Football Coverage. He was talking with the people who do the pregame show on Fox for College Football and had this to say about his plan going forward and how college football could work. I think there are two solutions. Let me start with the actual schedule. I believe we should cut down the number of games, which the the Big Ten and the Pac-12 has already done, going to conference only in those respects. And then we should maximize the amount of time it takes to play those shortened seasons. So in, in my model, what I would do is I would shorten the season to 10 games, and then I would lengthen the season from week zero towards Christmas. That's about 18 or 19 weeks where you could play those 10 games. You play the first two right away, and then you play every other week for the remainder of the season. It allows for off days, four or five off days after every single game. It allows kids to isolate and quarantine if they test positive, and yet you're minimizing the risk of actually losing a game because you don't have a roster to fulfill that contest. The other factor I would say, I said there was two solutions. That's one for the season. The other would be anybody that is immunocompromised or is older or just wants to should be able to opt out, and their job nor scholarship should be in jeopardy. I think those are concrete solutions that could be put into place so that we could see football this fall because the cost of not seeing football this fall, both to the individual and to the institution, is – significant to the individual we're talking about mental health lack of structure potential drug abuse to the institution you're talking about the loss of revenue that will that will mean in practice the loss of opportunity both in scholarships and in sports across the NCAA for young kids and that disproportionately affects the African-American community which makes up 48 and a half percent of NCAA football players. So all of these need to be acknowledged and we need to move forward with a best case scenario of playing a season this fall. Urban, what's your thoughts on how the fall should look? Well, first I'm gonna vote for Joel as commissioner of the NCAA uh, college football. (laughs) 
Yeah, Joe Clatt's a pretty smart guy, and that, that's a really well-thought-out answer. And if you think about it, the fact that you're able to, in some cases now, play every other week because of scheduling, and, you know, playing 14 college football games is probably a few too many, but the money was there. You can schedule games now that fill up a college football Saturday afternoon, and yeah, you're going to miss out on Harvard-Yale, which is traditionally a great rivalry in the Ivy League. You're going to miss out on some things. But I really think this works. Let's face it. When it comes down to the college football playoff annually, three teams seem to be a given. Ohio State, Alabama, and Clemson are there every year. It's always who's going to be the fourth team. And generally, that fourth team comes from one of the Power Five conferences anyway, whether it's Oklahoma possibly. Washington was in there a couple years ago. They likely won't this year. But there are chances for teams to get this done. And and I think this works. This plan of playing in conference only, figuring out a way to balance schedules throughout a team like Notre Dame, who's going to lose a lot of games as an independent, but because of their agreement with the ACC, could then pick games up within that conference. I think it works. I think it's interesting. And I think if it's done safely and it's done smartly, then college football can be played this fall. The question to me is, if the kids aren't on campus – if colleges decide that virtual learning is the way things are going to be done, can you justify having false sports on campus and doing all the things that they need to do if there aren't kids on campus? That's the one thing. But to, to give you an idea, Rutgers, which nobody thinks of Rutgers as a college football power, but they're a member of the Big Ten. They bring in $50 million worth of revenue for their from their football program. That funds their athletic department. You know how many other kids get scholarships to go to Rutgers because the football program brings in $50 million? Do you know how many other students get an opportunity at an education that they wouldn't have if not for the football program? Ohio State, $100 million worth of revenue. $100 million worth of revenue comes in to Ohio State because of their football program. Again, opportunities lost without that revenue. Overall, the Big Ten stands to lose $950 million in revenue. And while we all get caught up in you got to pay the players and blah, 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 the reality is that money, yes, the players you can make the argument that they're underpaid because they get a free scholarship that's only worth $70,000 a year. I won't make that argument. I don't agree with that argument. But that's my personal belief. But the reality is there are so many kids because of athletics and because of college football being the biggest sport, the biggest money sport that get opportunities to to get to college graduate college in many cases the first time ever in a family a kid gets a college degree because some other sport paid for him to go there that sport is football so 
that's why I think college football will be played this fall. I think the television money will go a long way to mitigate some of the losses. And I think that it will happen. It's just a matter of logistically working it out. The NBA, they're down in the bubble. And they're trying to figure out their things down there. But frankly, things look good. They haven't had a positive test down there other than dudes trying to sneak side pieces in. It's been a pretty well-run situation. I find it funny that uh, you're, you've got guys who are tweeting about how bad their room conditions are, saying they're staying at a uh, Motel 6, Stephen Adams, who is one of the more interesting dudes in the NFL. He's a player for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He said, basically, uh, look, we're staying at a resort. We're not staying at some third world country. It's a resort. It's not that bad. You know, right on for that. But what I find interesting is as the league starts up again and they work towards crowning a champion, the Lakers are one of the favorites. LeBron James, in his 17th year, has a chance to have won three championships with three different teams. He's, of course, won two in Miami. He won the one in Cleveland. If he wins one in L.A., does that give him another thing for his legacy? And while I was thinking of this, LeBron's legacy, it's simply this. He's one of the top five players in the history of the game, and there is no argument. You look at what he's done, his accomplishments. He's made 16 All-Star games. He's won three championships, as I mentioned. Six times All-Defense. Six. He's four-time MVP. Fifteen-time All-NBA. Three times he was the Finals MVP. Like, what's his legacy? Simply put, one of the five best players ever to lace him up. But I think it'll be interesting if he does win the third game. Well, the Lakers have had some issues. They've lost Avery Bradley. He's got concerns with health with his family, opted out. They've also lost Rajon Rondo, who had an injury to a finger. That puts somebody else in the spotlight. Former Laker assistant coach Judd Bushler talked about that and A fan favorite may be a huge part of the success or failure of the Lakers in this restart. If you could play analyst here for a moment, what do you think about the Lakers' chances given, you know, the, the, the lack of depth now that's being considered at the guard position? I, I, I still think with LeBron and AD and the way they constructed this team from day one, I mean, the guys, you know, KCP, Caruso, J.R. Smith now, Dion Waiters, I mean, they they did an incredible job. Rob Palenka deserves a lot of credit in how they've just constructed this team for something like this to go, you know, if, if this guy goes down, we need a backup. We need, a, you know, if this guy goes down and, you know, you think of those things as a general manager on let's go in with loaded all the way to whatever number guy it goes down, one through 15, one through 13, whatever it is. And I think they've done just a fantastic job. And obviously losing those two guys hurts them. But I, I believe in those other guys. I'm a, you know, I'm a huge Caruso 
fan. He, the way he's blossomed this year, I had a chance to coach him. He was one of the guys that was around, although he was a, a G League player, um, kind of going back and forth. But he, when I coached the Lakers Summer League a couple years ago, I mean, he basically, he and Kyle Kuzma basically won the Summer League for us. I mean, these guys, he's a very, very talented young player. I think he's going to get a chance to really show even more what, what he can do. But, you know, but KCP is great. We know what J.R. Smith brings, experience, you know, shot making, Deion Waiters. These are talented guys, so it hurts them, but but I still have them as, as one of the heavy favorites. Alex Caruso is one of those guys that the home fans know and love because he doesn't get in all that often, and when he does, he brings energy. And the visiting fans hate. It reminds me a little bit of a Matthew Dellavedova a couple of years ago with the Cavs, similar type player. When you get to playoff basketball, the secondary players are almost as important as the, the primary players. LeBron and Kevin Durant, you know what to expect from them. They're going to de- deliver. So it's always who is going to come with him. You know, go back to the Jordan documentary that we just saw, or the Michael Jordan infomercial sales pitch of why he was the greatest player of all time, whichever you want to call it. There was John Paxton. There was Craig Hodges. There was guys always making that shot, Steve Kerr. It's the other guys that make the plays that go along with it. Can Alex Caruso be that guy? I I frankly think he can. He's a good defender. He's got decent size and athleticism can hit the open shot. But what's interesting to me and will be interesting watching how it develops, in playoff basketball, role players traditionally play great at home and struggle on the road. If they played great all the time, they'd be much more than a role player. But that's kind of how it works in the playoffs. Your bench plays better at home. They're more comfortable, and they play better. That's just a fact. How does that happen, or how does it work when there is no home or away? Other than the uniforms they're playing, there is no home and away. You're not going to get the benefit of a whistle late. You're not going to get the crowd getting you excited. It's all self-motivation. So it's even more important, in my opinion, the role players handling their business on a night-in, night-out basis, and the players that do that the best their team will come out of the bubble with a championship. So keep an eye on that as we get towards the end of the regular season, which is about 10 games that they're going to play before they get into the playoffs. Keep an eye on the bench play because I don't know what to expect. I would expect guys to play fairly consistently as opposed to spikes and dips. I would expect much more of a level playing field going forward without the home crowd getting things going. So interesting to watch that. Last week I closed talking about social justice and social justice for all and how you can't have, you can't pick and choose your social justice. If you believe all people are equal, which I would hope everyone does, then you don't pick and choose your causes. You may champion a cause more than others, but you can't champion your cause 
while looking down on another cause. And that seems to be happening with too too much regularity. And and it bothered me, and and I was very annoyed by it, and I let everyone know that last week. I don't know if I said it well, but I do know that Charles Barkley says it extremely well in this clip. Listen, Deshaun Jackson, Steven Jackson, Nick Cannon, Ice Cube, man, what the hell are y'all doing? Like, y'all want racial equality. We all do. I don't understand how insulting another group helps our cause. And the only person called y'all on it was Kareem. We can't allow black people to be prejudiced also especially if we're asking for white folks to respect us, give us economic opportunity, and things like that. I'm so disappointed in these men, but I don't understand how you beat hatred with more hatred. That stuff should never come up in your vocabulary, and it should never come up in your heart. I don't understand it. I'm never going to accept it. And I'm asking you guys, I'm begging you guys, man, You guys are famous. You got a platform. We got to do better, man. I want allies. I don't want to alienate anybody. And to take shots at the the, the Jewish race, the white race, I just don't like it because it's not right. And I had to call them on it because it's really really been on my heart. Well said, Charles. I could not agree more. Nobody wins unless everybody wins. So, show for this week. Thanks for listening again. Hope you had a great week. And uh, next week, real sports to talk about. Looking forward to it. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening.